This text is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So you turn to that passage, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'll read verses 17 through 20. I want you to be sure and find the passage. Some of you may already, um, having seen it in the, in the bulletin, already turned, but it doesn't sound like too many pages are turning. I want to hear those pages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. That word means literally... He is a new species of being. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I'm reminded of a statement that Abraham Lincoln made when he assumed the presidency in difficult times. He said, if we could first learn where we are and whither we are tending, we could better judge what to do and how to do it. That is true because uh, purpose often dictates procedure, and that's true across the board. At the heart of this text is the basic question that confronts the Christian faith. What does it really mean to be the people of God? If we really could learn where we are and whither we are tending, we could know better what to do and how to do it. I suppose that this is the basic problem maybe that confronts the modern church because we really don't know what it really means to be the people of God. We don't know what that is or what we're to be. And we don't know how to be expressions of the people of God because we don't know what it means to be the people of God. If it means something more than or something other than believing in Jesus and being faithful to the church and doing good, we don't know what it is. But we don't get out of chapter 5 of this epistle till we find some answers to that question. As a matter of fact, In every one of Paul's epistles, he confronts confronts us with a reality that being God's people is more than being a member of a church and faithful to it and loving Jesus and being good. As a matter of fact, in every one of his epistles, he reminds us that being the people of God means that we are people on a mission who are called to a ministry. And the call to the ministry is as great as the call to salvation. And he confronts us with the fact in every one of his epistles that God's people are priests themselves. And he says or reminds us that we don't have to have a priest for we are one. 
It's interesting that the Latin word for priest is the word bridge builder, so that God's people are people who bring together those two points that have been separated. And our goal is to establish somehow a relationship at the deepest level between the human creature and the ultimate creator. And he says, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. I want to tell you something this morning. I believe that the ministry of reconciliation, that reconciliation in its profoundest sense, is the main business of every child of God here. To somehow facilitate at the deepest level a spirit of trust and openness and at oneness between what has been created and the one who has created us. And I believe that is the urgent need of this time. In the very beginning account of the book, uh, in, in the book of Genesis, we are able to find that, that all of the anguish that has ever been experienced in history can be traced back to one point. For in the book of Genesis, we find the record of the fact that in the beginning of the ages, something awesome happened. And a spirit of mistrust came into being at the primal level. And when that spirit of mistrust began to develop, all of the disintegration and the alienation of which are the inevitable fruits of such a spirit began to work itself out in human history. And man was separated from God forever. And the creature was severed from his source. I remember reading some time back of a merchant in a little town in the Midwest. He had twin boys, identical twins. And from the very first, they were inseparable. They just, they lived together. They, look, they not only looked alike, they talked alike, they ate the same kind of food, they dressed the same way, they went to the same schools. And they were so close in their relationship that they never married and when their father died, they came back from the university to, to establish or to run the family business. And it was a beautiful partnership of trust and collaboration. And everything was going fine as these twins lived out their life in this spirit of trust and love. And one day a customer came into the store. It was early in the morning and he made a small purchase. Just cost a dollar. And one of the twins there alone that morning took, a dollar, took the dollar and laid it on the cash register. And he walked his customer friend to the front of the store and they chatted there on the sidewalk for a while and he came back in the store and he forgot about the dollar. After a while, about mid-morning, he remembered the dollar and he went over to put it in the cash register and was gone. And he said to his brother, did you get that dollar bill that was laying here on the cash register? And he said, no, I didn't see it. He said, well, that's funny. I distinctly remember putting that dollar right here on this cash register. And he had he let it go at that, it would just have been a kind of a mystery surrounding a small purchase and a tiny amount of money, but he didn't let it drop. About an hour later, he asked again his brother, and this time with just a kind of a hint of suspicion in his voice, and he said, you sure you didn't get that dollar that was laying there on the cash register? And the brother caught immediately that, that tone of alienation in his voice, and he flared up immediately in defensive anger. 
It was the beginning, the first beginning of a breach of trust that began to widen and widen and widen until finally they decided that they would dissolve their partnership. And so they ran a partition right down the middle of the store. And one of the brothers worked on one side and one of the, the other brother worked on the other side. And what had been a marvelous partnership of collaboration and trust was now turned into a war of suspicion and anger and hostility. And that went on for 20 years just like that until one day a man pulled up out in front of the store in a car, in an automobile, with an out-of-state license plate. And the man came in and he kind of looked around. He was puzzled because it wasn't as he remembered it. And he asked the store owner, he said, Are you the owner of this store? And he said, Yes. And he said, Well, you here 20 years ago? And he said, Yes. And he said, Well, you're the man I need to talk to. He said, I came into your town 20 years ago riding a freight train. And I was hungry and penniless and destitute. And he said, I came down the alley of, of behind your store and, and it was early in the morning and we had a little break, a little time from the freight stop. And he said, I came in the back of the store and I walked around and there was nobody here and I saw this dollar bill lying on the cash register. And he said, I would have never taken that dollar except I was hungry and I was destitute. And he said, I took the dollar and I slipped out the back door and nobody saw me. But he said, I was raised in a Christian home and I haven't been able to live with myself for these 20 years, and I came back to give you back your dollar and to make restitution for all the harm I may have caused. And he was surprised when he saw the elderly merchant break down and weep. And when he could control himself, the merchant said, I want you to go next door and tell this same story to my brother. And they went next door and they told the same story to the brother, and he broke down and wept, and they embraced. Just think, for 20 years... There was hostility and recrimination and distrust and all of it was rooted in a spirit of mistrust that now was tragically revealed to have no basis in reality at all. And I want you to know that little story or illustration parallels what happened to man in the beginning of the human race. For there was a time, the Bible says, when man and God lived together just like those twins as a matter of fact, the Genesis image says that God and man walk together in the cool of the evening. And you can just see them there spiritually sharing openness and, and gratitude and trust. And then something happened to their relationship. And something separated them just like that which separated those twins. For a spirit of mistrust came into being and it was rooted at the deepest level and they were divided from each other, man divided from God. And in the beginning it was the serpent who suggested it. He came to Eve and said, Did God say for you not to eat of this fruit? You can't trust Him. Why, he's, He knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be God. He's just a an insecure tyrant that has to shove you down to prop himself up. And he knows that when you take of this fruit, you'll be as wise as he is. You won't have to listen to his do's and don'ts. You'll be God in your own right. You can make choices to please yourself. So why don't you lay aside those restraints and rebel against this tyrant who seeks to dominate you. Go to war. Take matters in your own hands. And in that fateful moment, our forebearers made the choice between trust and suspicion. And they cho chose to, 
to believe the worst instead of the best. And what happened in that fateful moment is what the ancient theologians refer to as the fall. And I tell you, it has affected every one of us. And when it was decided and determined that the source could no longer be trusted, everything began to unravel. And alienation and suspicion became the order of the day, and the cosmos was turned into chaos. And the beautiful, peaceful Garden of Eden was turned into an arena of suspicion and fear. And that's where we are now. The question that emerges from this is this question. Can anything be done about this riot of undoing? Can anything be done about this alienation that turns something beautiful and good into something tragic and distorted in the language of the illustration? Is it possible that someone might come like the stranger without a state license? Is it possible that someone might come and make right what was made wrong? Well, that's exactly what God did. And that's the word of this Bible. That's the theme of the gospel that God did come, the stranger did come. He looked like us, but He was different. He talked like us, but never a man spake as He. He had the same urges and the same desires, and yet without sin, He never made a mistake. And what God did in Christ, the Scripture said, was that He came in this stranger to reconcile man to Himself, acting decisively and lovingly in human history to buy man back to reconcile him. And the wonder of all of that is that it was God who moved in history to reconcile man. God the offended moving to reconcile the offender. It was man's distrust and suspicion and arrogance that caused the breach, but it was God who moved decisively to correct the breach. And Alexander McLaren catches the spirit of that when he says, to sue for love, I want you to get this, to sue for love, to beg that an enemy will put that an enemy will put away his enmity as the part of the inferior rather than the superior, is the part of the offender rather than of the offended, is the part of the vanquished rather than the victor, is the part surely not of the king but of the rebel. Yet here in the sublime transcending of all human precedent and pattern which characterizes the divine healing, we have the place of the supplicant and of the supplicated inverted, inverted. And love upon the throne bends down to ask of the rebel to put away all the bitterness out of his heart and come back to the love and to the grace which are ready to pour over him. What a word. That's what this text says. That man in his suspicion and distrust has become alienated from God and rebelled against Him. But God moved in history to buy man back, to bring him back. Oh, the wonder of that. And the Apostle Paul exalts in it when he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over, my friend. Stuart Briscoe said that when he was a kid growing up in England, One night he was awakened at about 2 o'clock in the morning, early in the morning, by noise, by dancing, by singing. And he said he went went downstairs and asked his parents, what's going on? They went out in the streets, and people were out in the streets singing and dancing and rejoicing and shouting. And they said, the war is over. The war is over. 
Harken back to your forebearers in the Garden of Eden when that great moment of separation came, when God and man were separated, and you were a part of that in, in the creation. But the war is over in Christ Jesus. John Killinger says that Christ is God's answer to the problem of a bad reputation. I, I thought about that a long time. I don't know whether I like that statement or not, but I believe it's true. Jesus Christ is God's answer to the problem of a bad reputation. Jesus is God moving to answer the charges leveled at Him by the serpent and to reveal in an incredible way that in the heart of God He is not against His creation but for it. And in God's moving in history to bring reconciliation, He was so anxious to answer the problem of a bad reputation, He spared not His own Son, but gave Him up freely for us all. That's mind-boggling. I didn't really understand that until I had children of my own. And I began to get those protective urges that every parent gets automatically or instinctively. And I begin to value the welfare of my children above every other value, even my own life, and that's the truth. And so when I think about offering my only son as a sacrifice for someone else, it's mind-boggling. I want you to get in my mind this morning and live with me just a minute. I have some land and I need a tenant dweller for it. I hear about a family who might come and live on my property and, and till my soil and raise my crops for me. And so I bring them to my property and I build them a lovely house to live in. And I buy them the best machinery to use and I give them seed to plant. I set them up so that they can live creatively. And about a month later I hear that they're neglecting my land. It's getting hard and weedy. And they're not tilling it and they're not sowing the seed. And I hear from their carelessness they're destroying my house. And I've understood that they've wrecked my machinery and they've taken the seed and sold it for liquor. But I'm not going to give up in my goal to help them. And so I get the county agent to go out there and teach them how to farm. And I get representatives from the factories that sold me the machinery to go show them how to take care and treat the machinery. And still they waste it and tear it up and destroy it. One day my son comes. And he says, Dad, let me go and see if I can entreat for you. Let me go and represent you. I'm kind of related to some of the younger ones there. and They'll understand me. I think I can communicate your desire for them, your love for them. Let me go and see if I can't think, make things right. And so I let him go. I rejoice in the fact of his love. And I want to see him move for me and represent me in that affair. About two months later, I'm hearing that everything's going pretty well. And I rejoice in it. Things are going fine. They've accepted him. And they've made him a part of their family. Then word comes to my ear, things I cannot believe, like they've turned against him. And they've abused him. And then I hear that one day they took him out behind the barn and sexually abused him and murdered him in cold blood. And to think about that causes primitive anger to well up inside of me. And then all of a sudden, the gratitude and the grace of that emotion becomes a part of my mind and heart. For that's exactly what God did. And that's exactly what we did to Him. 
For all he wanted from us was that we enjoy what he enjoys. All he wanted from us was that we love him. And we took his son out, abused him, and murdered him in cold blood. And all of it was just because he wanted to reconcile us to himself. And this Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when I read that, I rebel. That's repulsive to me. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. And the Apostle Paul catches the theme when he says, Unto you has been given this ministry of reconciliation, to be a Jesus in the world as the body of Christ. I repeat, I believe the main business of every Christian here this morning is to establish somehow at the deepest level a relation between the human creature and the ultimate creator to somehow facilitate a spirit of oneness and openness and trust at the, at the deepest level. That's our main business. And I believe the way we do that, the best way we do that, this is where we are and whether we're tending, this is how we do it. By becoming examples of reconciliation by becoming examples of trust, exponents of reconciliation, and expositors of the gospel. That's how you do it. Something happens to me when I see people who are examples of faith, of trust. When I see a man or a woman or a child just trusting in the source of God and God just takes care of them like a loving father, something happens to me at the deepest level of my being. Jack Taylor said there's something that following Jesus is something akin to walking on water. You cannot depend on the farmer things any longer. You are, he said, at, as it were, out and out on Jesus. And if he fails, you fail. What does it mean to live in trust? What does it mean to be examples of trust? It means that I make the choice. I make the choice that I'm going to crawl out on God. And I'm going to so rest myself upon His providence and provision that if He fails to come through, then I'm through. It means that I'm crawling out of the boats of ordinariness. It means that I'm going to receive the commands of Jesus. I'm, it's a revival of faith. It means I'm going to identify with Christ in His triumphant God-anointed life. And if the cause of the breach that has happened in the world between God and man and between man and man is because at the deepest level and the primal level there is a spirit of mistrust, then it seems to me logically that the way to bring men back to God is to see examples of trust. Men need to see that God can be trusted. Men need to see that you can rest upon God and He'll provide. They need to see that in this church and they need to see that in our lives. And we need to be examples, exponents of reconciliation. That means you're going to have to stop this negativism. You know, where we get together and we say, I don't know what I like, I don't know what I like, I don't know what I like, you know, that kind of talk. I don't know what I think, I don't know what I think, I don't know what I think about that. I don't know whether I believe in her or not. I don't know whether I like him or not. Go home today and pick up that telephone and call that man. I'm saying, hear me. You are an agent of reconciliation. Go home today and pick up that telephone and call that person 
whose breach of confidence and love has, has come, the breach of confidence and love has, has come, and, and ask and say those words that are sticking in your throat, I'm sorry, I want you to forgive me. And go knock on that door of that person that has, has been separated from you and your communication and your trust and your confidence and your love, and you get right. And you take your wife's hand that wife you hurt last night when you had that moment of irritability and selfishness said those things you didn't really mean and get right. We're agents of reconciliation. We're to be expositors of the gospel. For he said, it has been committed unto us, the word, that is, the word of reconciliation. You can go tell it. The war is over. You need to be at that house where that person is caught, where, that's, where, where that person is experiencing that civil inner war, and you can tell him, listen, there's no reason for you to fight any longer. There's no reason for you to be unhappy. God has bridged this, has spanned the, 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 the gap, and he loves you. And you can go to that brother who's separated from his brother, and you can read him Ephesians and say, listen, in Christ the middle wall of partition has been broken down. No race or creed or color or nationality or class should ever separate us again. Listen, I'm through. In small churches, the, the, the Sunday schools usually meet together and they have opening assemblies. I've pastored some of those churches and everybody meets together and we have an opening assembly and everybody goes to Sunday school. That's kind of fun. You get to sing happy birthday and put pennies in little church collection banks and what have you. And this, in this particular, this particular church, Mrs. Tandy's fifth grade Sunday school class was responsible for the opening assembly this, this Sunday because they just kind of passed it among them, you know, the classes, rotated. And they decided that they would pantomime, act out the parable of the Good Samaritan. Judy was the best reader in the class, and so she got to be the narrator. And they were going to pantomime on this little stage, this uh, Good Samaritan parable. And she began to read in melodious tones. There was a man, a certain man, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. And Billy came traipsing across the stage. And these thieves that were hidden behind the bushes in the pews came out and pounced on him and cleaned his spark plugs right there on the stage of that church and gave him an overhaul and left him there to die. And she said, and the priest came by and, and, and passed by on the other side and, and Johnny came across the stage or Billy who Jack or whatever and he didn't even look at the man lying beside her. And so the Levite, and this thing is building for crescendo. I mean, it's getting exciting because... Familiarity with the parable will just dictate, will just suggest that the hero is about to enter. And she says in a melodious tone, And then a certain Samaritan came by and went over and had compassion on him, and nothing happened. Nobody came across the stage. On the front row, one little boy punched his friend. He said, That's you. And he said, no, it ain't. The teacher said, you had to be the Good Samaritan. And, and, and he said, no, she didn't. She said, you had to be the Good Samaritan. And they just punching each other, trying to get somebody to respond. And all the while, that old boy just laid there and died 
right on the stage of that little church while those boys argued about while those boys argued about who would be the agent of reconciliation. And it seems to me, now listen carefully, it seems to me that this world is lying down and dying while it waits for somebody to reconcile it to God. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, it's awesome to read that at the primal level, at the very beginning, the pages, the first page, something happened that has affected all of mankind ever since. Distrust and suspicion entered. And we confess that down deep inside of us, we are fearful of you. We don't trust you. But it's just as awesome to read that at a point of time, a stranger came to say all of the suspicion and the distrust is invalid, has no reality. I've come to tell you that your Creator loves you. I've come to bring you back to your source. And we know His name. We've seen His cross. We've, saw, we've seen Him die. We saw His blood. We look to Him today as the one to bring us back to God. And as we look to Him, we hear Him say, As the Father sent me, even so, send I you. Oh, move upon our heart today. Dear Lord, Amen. Now in a spirit of prayer, would you look this way? Our invitations this morning run along three lines. The first invitation is for those of you who have been separated from God by your sin. And the chasm just gets wider and wider. And you've built all kinds of bridges trying to get to God. And you're empty and separated and alone and estranged. The first invitation is for you to come to the one who is the bridge to come to Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Would you come to Jesus this morning? We're going to start to sing in just a moment. We'll just ask you to get up out of your seat and come. There are counselors here, staff members who are going to meet you here to say, this is how you become a Christian. This is how you give your heart to Jesus. Stop trusting in yourself. Those things won't work. Stop trusting in that church, in that baptism, in those good works. They won't work. Start trusting in Jesus. There's no way to God except through Him. Second invitation is for you to come. These are simultaneously directed, of course. It's for you to come and place your life in the church. God has led you to say, I want to join that church. There's where the gospel is preached and where love is expressed. 
where fellowship can be found. And I want to join your church. Come on promise of letter by statement. Now, thirdly, come to say, I accept the ministry to which I have been called. I accept the ministry of reconciliation. I'll go to make reconciliation. I'll go teach that class. I'll go be that witness. I'll do this or that. I commit my life to it. These are the invitations. Boy, it would be a tragic mistake if you walked out of here. God is speaking to your heart. You didn't respond. So why don't you do it? On the first verse, it's easier if you step out on the first word. Just step out in that aisle and come with your friends while we stand and sing.